Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin in for Roy. The Canadian government has promised to quickly evacuate as many Afghan interpreters and Canadian citizens from Afghanistan. We chat with Canadian Major General Dennis Thompson. Why didn't Canada evacuate Afghan interpreters and their families from the war-torn nation of Afghanistan weeks or even months ago? We asked that question of David Tarrant, Vice President, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. An Ipsos poll done exclusively for Global News suggests the Trudeau Liberals are poised to win the election but may not form a majority government, and the CFIB wants the federal parties to focus on reviving the economy. The Roy Grainshell podcast starts now. What a week it has been in Afghanistan. As you know, Canada, the U.S., other allied forces who had fought the war on terror in that country for 20 years are pulling out. The Taliban has swiftly, and many have said, unexpectedly, already have control of that nation. You've seen the photos, you've seen the videos of desperate Afghans trying to escape that country. How the Canadian government and those of several other nations trying to evacuate their citizens, it's not easy. It's not pretty. Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino says his government will accelerate uh, the processing of families of interpreters and you know others who supported Canada's mission in Afghanistan to quickly evacuate as many approved people as possible. Now, just yesterday, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau assured that the government is doing everything it can to get people out safely. I can tell you that everyone is working incredibly hard day and night to try and get as many people out of Afghanistan into safety safety as possible, and we will continue to do everything we possibly can. Medicino, for his part, says the government not requiring passports or COVID-19 negative tests from the Afghan passengers and is deferring biometric screening to a third country where it's safe for the evacuees and government officials to take those biometrics. Our opening guest today on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Dennis Thompson, Major General, retired, spent 39 years with the Canadian military and joins us now. Mr. Thompson, how are you today? I'm quite well, thank you, Rick. How surprised are you that Canada, the U.S., other allied forces are in this difficult situation of evacuating our citizens and and people who helped us? I think we're all surprised that the Taliban collapsed in such a spectacular and swift fashion. It wasn't something we expected. We thought that the institution would stand for a little while longer than it actually did. I attribute it to the fact that those institutions were rotten in many respects. It's not the fault of the individual Afghan soldier who we know, the Canadians that served over there, to be tough as nails. So yes, we're, we're definitely taken aback and, and we're going to sort this out now uh, in, the, in the time that remains. 
You were uh, the head of the NATO command in Kandahar. You know Afghanistan almost like the back of your hand. From a logistic standpoint, what challenges do the soldiers on the ground right now face? Well, the Canadian Armed Forces soldiers that are on the ground inside of the Kabul airport and that are assisting in the in the movement of Canadian uh, Afghan Afghans who supported Canadians overseas and their families to get out of the country, they're in, in a very difficult situation because uh, for them, there is the relative safety of the airport, but it, because, of course, the airport is secured by several thousand U.S. soldiers. But for the Afghans at the exterior that we're trying to get in, when they're called forward from their safe houses and their and their private residences, they have to run the gauntlet of several Taliban checkpoints in order to get to the edge of the airfield, and then they have to navigate their way somehow inside. So it's a it's a tricky challenge, one that we're doing our best to support through our loose network of veterans who are in daily, if not hourly, contact with these families when they're called forward. It, it is not a simple or tidy process whatsoever. And it really is a result of this crisis that has been do- dropped in our lap due to the collapse of the Afghan government and the and the uh, rapid advance of the Taliban. As you've mentioned, we've heard that the Taliban has choked off basically access to the airport, and that's caused many Afghan interpreters and their families to remain in hiding rather than you know run the risk of being caught trying to flee or, or get to the airport. Are they sitting ducks? Can we get them out? How do we get them out? Well, there's there's a number of options. You may have heard that the Americans flew out a, a group of their own citizens from the from a hotel in Kabul. That's in, that's in the media by helicopter. Uh, but but frankly, in my opinion, there is only one option, and it's a very unpalatable one, and that is to negotiate with the Taliban to provide us with a a, a period of respite, if you will, to get our folks through, or at the higher level because the operation is, after all, a coalition operation run by an American general, for them to talk to the senior Taliban leadership, get a general amnesty of some kind, uh, 12 or 24 hours, and move as many of these deserving families as possible from all the coalition nations onto the airfield so that they can be spirited away out of the country. If uh, the 31st of August passes, without that having been accomplished, then those that are left behind will be will be victims of a serious reckoning, unfortunately. And that's certainly our opinion because I don't believe any of the Taliban promises. So the bottom line here is, uh, unfortunately, if you're going to get people through these massive crowds and past these Taliban checkpoints, it's going to take negotiations with the very people we were enemies of uh, or and still are and probably will be for years to come. And you called those negotiations unpalatable. Is that because there's no trust there? There's absolutely no trust. There's absolutely no trust, but we do have a recent precedent. On Wednesday, the French forces negotiated a passage to get some of their diplomats and, and the uh, Afghans affiliated with the, with the France-French embassy out of, uh, out of harm's way and onto the airfield and, and back to France. So it is possible, uh, and obviously there's probably some lessons learned from their actions there that, that could be incorporated by the other members of the coalition. Uh, but it's going to be difficult. Make no mistake, there are, uh, as you've seen in the pictures, some pretty horrific conditions for these people to endure just trying to get to the edge of the airport where they can be uh, vetted quickly and then and spirited into the airport for onward, onward flights to third-party countries, where the, most of which are in the Gulf states.
Those videos we've seen from uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport, uh, just with literally dozens, if not hundreds of people sitting, waiting for hours, uh, wondering you know, what their future holds, the coordination on the ground uh, has, to be, has to be perfect, doesn't it? it? It absolutely has to be perfect. It has to be a good tie-in between those that are in touch with the with these families, and, and again, we're talking about families here. That, that's what really makes it tough. It's not a bunch of uh, young interpreter men, that the, the, the folks that actually worked with us and a few women. It's them and their entire families because the Taliban will not exact their revenge just against an interpreter. And in fact, if they want to get to the interpreter because he's out of the country, they'll just take out his family without any remorse. So yes, it's tough, and it's, and it's doubly tough because... There, there are children involved, uh, right from little baby infants, uh, you know, all the way up to toddlers and uh, and juveniles. Not a not a pretty sight, and uh, hopefully one a logjam that we can negotiate our way through. Um, so, but so we have to remain cautiously optimistic, and we have to ensure that we put our best foot forward in order to to advance this initiative. Retired Canadian Major General Dennis Thompson is our opening guest here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick, in for Roy today. The United States has advised Americans in Afghanistan to avoid traveling to Kabul airport due to potential threats. With so much at stake, do you expect this evacuation to proceed peacefully to its conclusion? Um, I'm not going to predict the future. That's a bit of a mugs game. What I will tell you is that we, and and, and by we, I mean not just, uh, not just the government forces or Canada's uh, elements that are on the ground, but also all those veterans who are in contact with these families are going to do our damnedest to get them all out. Uh, every single family is a success and anyone left behind is a failure. So we're, we are not going to take our foot off the gas. It, it this has to happen because it's the right thing to do. Several NATO member nations are pressing for the evacuations to continue beyond America's deadline of August 31st. Do you think that evacuation deadline can and will be extended? Well, like if the United States, as I said, you know, the United States in, in all of these coalitions is the 800-pound gorilla. If they decide that it's going to go beyond the 31st of August, we're part of that coalition. I have a, a reasonable degree of confidence that we would st- will stay as long as there's a, a coalition in place and as long as we still have people to evacuate. Because remember, there are still Canadian citizens, not just the uh, the the families and and the interpreters that used to work with Canada. But there are still Canadian cities that are tra- citizens that are trapped inside the city of Kabul. And, and they could be either uh, Canadian citizens that were visiting family in Afghanistan or contractors that were caught out. So it, and this is really a big problem for the United States as well. So if it goes beyond the 31st of August, I mean, I can't predict government policy, but I would imagine because there is uh, a very tight coalition on the ground that, that would, they would agree to stay on. Do we know how many Canadian citizens are there? Is it dozens? Is it hundreds? I, I don't personally know. It's a great question to put to Global Affairs Canada. You might know that they keep a thing called the ROCA or the Register of Canadians Abroad, uh, ROCA. Uh, and, and so those citizens that are registered on the ROCA, if they're still outside the wire, if you will, outside the airport, they would be known to Global Affairs Canada. And hopefully they would be... Um, informed when to move to the airport. How confident are you that we're going to get everyone out that we want out of there? 
I'm sorry, your, your question was a little bit broken up. Sorry, uh, uh, I'm, I'll rephrase it. How, how confident are you are that everyone that we want to evacuate from Afghanistan will be able to do so? Well, I go back to my previous answer. Uh, it's not a question of confidence. It's a question of will at this particular point in time. We need to press forward and make it happen. And that's, I believe, what everyone has in mind, <clears throat> whether they're on the ground or whether they're back here in Canada in touch with these desperate families. So uh, desperate families and their and the heads of families who typically are these, these interpreters. Um, uh, but, you know, it's... Um, not a question of confidence right now. It's a question of the will to carry on. And I know that that's very strong amongst our, amongst our group of volunteer veterans. And I have no doubt it's the same thing for those people that are on the ground inside the airport. Well said. Major General Thompson, thank you for the time today and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. And, and thank you as well. And to your listeners, we need to keep this issue alive. These people deserve our help. Well, the questions many Canadians are asking themselves on the topic of Afghanistan is why didn't Canada evacuate Afghan interpreters and Canadian citizens from this war-torn country weeks or even months ago? We knew the exit plan. The government knew this day was coming. Why did it wait so long? Liberal leader Justin Trudeau says the world was caught off guard by the speed at which the Taliban retook control of the country. And the U.S. announcing it was withdrawing its forces from the country. That, that announcement came weeks and weeks and weeks ago. They, too, were surprised at the speed in which Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. People both in country and around the world have been dismayed by the speed uh, at which things have happened and, quite frankly, surprised by the speed at which things have happened on the ground. Trudeau promising that Canada would accept 20,000 Afghan refugees. We know that the C-17 military transport planes have been reconfigured. They're going to and from Afghanistan, evacuating people from that country. More flights are on the way. Ottawa says about 1,000 Afghan refugees have already arrived in Canada. As that process to get them out of Afghanistan has ramped up. But again, back to the question, why are we here? Why did this take so long? Let's bring in our next guest, David Tarrant, is Vice President, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise, and he joins us now. David, good afternoon. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me on the program. Why do you think it took Canada and practically every other nation involved in Afghanistan so long to start this evacuation? I mean, this can be called a colossal failure. I think it can be called a colossal failure, Rick. And I mean, listen, the, the biggest failure of all belongs to the Americans. And I don't care how you feel about Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Those two presidents uh, owe sole responsibility for the absolute uh, catastrophe that's unfolding, uh, unfolding in Afghanistan. But from Canada's standpoint, what is inexcusable, and from the Trudeau government standpoint, what is inexcusable is in seeing that things are going to get worse, not better. And, and you could say, oh, it didn't happen faster than we anticipated, sure. But people could see the writing on the wall here. And they still decided to follow a slow bureaucratic process uh, when it came to our inter the interpreters who, who, who are our partners, are, who are Canadian Forces soldiers, work so closely with, those interpreters and those families were left twisting in the wind, which is quite frankly a betrayal of these innocent people and a betrayal of the Canadian values. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't an act of, of deceit, but it's an act of negligence that takes these two people for granted 
and quite frankly, uh, you know, the human stakes here are, are just, it's, it's gut-wrenching, Rick, because people will die. Uh, and they will die because uh, the government did not give these heroes, and they are heroes, the priority they deserve. There is, uh, we've heard this from the Prime Minister, Marco Mendocino, the Immigration Minister, even from officials in the U.S. that, you know, they're dealing with red tape. You know, in my mind, it may be a simple one, but, you know, to heck with the red tape, let's get these people out of here and then deal with the red tape later. Yeah, you know what, it, it's a lot easier to figure out someone's status when there isn't a Taliban barbarian shooting a rifle at you. You know, like, let's get these people on the plane, err on the side of maybe accepting a few too many, uh, as opposed to a few too few. And you know what? If that means you have a little bit more paperwork to deal with, one sure in safety in the safety of Canada, go for it. But every hour that these people are stuck in Afghanistan, while the Taliban, who are quite frankly among the most monstrous people in the world, are there, you're putting innocent, innocent people, innocent children, at risk, and that is morally indefensible. And quite frankly, I don't care how much what the red tape is or what the, the bureaucratic protocol of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Global Affairs says about this. Get these people on the plane. Get them out there. They were there for us. And in the hour of need under this government, Canada was not there for them. And that's a shame and a disgrace on the country. The Pentagon saying it warned the White House for weeks about delaying the evacuation of American personnel from Afghanistan would be uh, obviously dire. Clearly, the White House got this wrong. And, you know, I guess Canada and other nations can make the claim that they're following the Americans' league, or lead, that is. But uh, obviously, everyone underestimated how quickly the Afghan government and the military there would fall. Yes, Rick, but we could have been expediting uh, a path to... uh refugee or citizenship status for the interpreter's families for years now. Like, you don't have to wait for Afghanistan to fall apart uh, to start doing this. Uh, you don't have to wait, you know, oh, we're going to, we're going to process more, more refugees. Well, that's great at the, at the 11th hour when the country has literally fallen apart. Uh, you know, and, and, and good, you know, it, every innocent Afghan citizen that we, we help save is, is a good thing. Uh, what I find inexcusable uh, is anybody who helps Canada, anyone that helped our Canadian forces soldiers, anybody, any Afghan who stood up and said, I will be part of the solution, they are marked. Their families are marked. They will be killed. And the government has, the Trudeau government has had years, years to get these people and their families to safety. And they didn't because these people just aren't that important. They spend more time worrying about their majority than worrying about the lives of those, these brave men and women who sacrificed so much to help help us, uh, and now they're left twisting in the wind because at the end of the day, this is a government that, we're, that only cares about the important people. And, and that's just, quite frankly, a disgrace. David Tarrant is our guest. He's the Vice President, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise, former communications strategist with the Stephen Harper government. You're listening to The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy today. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made it clear on Tuesday that Canada has, quote-unquote, no plans to recognize the Taliban as Afghanistan's official statements, uh, government, pardon me, saying that, quote, they are a recognized terrorist organization under Canadian law. When he was first asked about it, he said something to the effect that he would wait and see, and I'm not sure what he was waiting for. It, it puzzles me too, Rick. I mean, the Taliban are a listed terrorist entity. Like, like you know, they harbored al-Qaeda. They played a direct role in facilitating the 9-11 attacks. Their, their record uh, in terms of facilitating the serial rape and, uh, and abuse of women, uh, summary executions, 
Like, there's very, like you'd be hard-pressed to find worse human beings on walking planet Earth than the Taliban. And it should be a no-brainer from anyone with a working moral compass. Do you believe these people are legitimate? Can you believe a group like the Taliban can legitimately form uh, a, a legitimate government? Well, the answer is no. And it, it, I just find it funny. We're in a, a federal election now, and the prime minister is so quick to judge people here at home who might disagree with him on social matters related to women's rights or whatnot. But he was so reluctant to judge them. And it just goes to show uh, um, an incredibly blinkered view of the world that, you know, the only, the only, the only women's rights as government seems to care about are women's rights that help this guy form a majority government. Like, it, it should be the easiest decision a prime minister makes is whether or not you are prepared to do business or recognize these barbarians. The answer has to be 100% of the time, right away, never. In saying that, do you think the turmoil in Afghanistan is going to resonate on the federal election campaign trail? Listen, foreign, foreign policy, I've worked in a bunch of election campaigns. Rec, foreign policy is rarely uh, drives people's votes. That's just the reality of, of, of you know, it's, it's remote for most people's day-to-day lives. When people go and vote in the, in the election in September, do I think Afghanistan will be what makes them cross next? No. However, I do think uh, I do think uh, it does expose uh, a deeper, uh, uh, probably ethical blind spot that this government's always had. That can be seen whether you look at the S and C Lavalin scandal or other scandals. That uh, this is a government that only really uh, you know the only the only issues that are important to this government are issues that happen to important people, um, and that blind spot is something that. I think Nas, that the people might otherwise interpret their values or policy preferences might want to vote liberal. And, you know, and if, if Mr. Trudeau falls short of his majority, uh, it could very well be because, you know, people have serious questions about his ethical compass, his moral compass in that regard. And at the end, the Afghanistan crisis is just a one proof point of many in that regard. Russia and China have made overtures to the Taliban. Pakistan and Iran have uh, kept their embassies open in Kabul. Should we be fearsome of this quintet of nations apparently supporting each other, at least publicly? Yes. Uh, the last, pa- last time that, that the, the Taliban ran Afghanistan, it was a safe harbor for terrorists, including a, a, a number of, of, of primarily Saudi-backed terrorist cells, who, you know, as we know as al-Qaeda right now, who launched 9-11 terrorist attacks. Like, you know, nobody, all those countries you name, none of those countries are, uh, care about human rights. None of those countries care about democracy. None of them care about women's rights. None of them care about the rule of law. Um, they do, all those countries are quite happy to use violence against innocent people to achieve their ends. Um, you know, having a domino fall and, 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 and having one more country kind of give way to dictatorship and, 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 a, and abusive militarization is a bad thing for anybody in the world who cares about human rights. It is. It, it, it's. You know, will this lead to another 11 I hope not. But surely the world is a less safe, a less free place today because what's unfolded over the past month. The Nipsos poll, done exclusively for Global News, suggests that the Trudeau Liberals are poised to win the federal election on September 20th. However, and I think this is a big but, because I think this is why we're having this election, they may not have enough support coast to coast to coast to form a majority government. And the poll also shows that Trudeau is seen as the best candidate for prime minister among the party leaders vying for the country's top political post. So a lot of things going right, seemingly, at the start of this thing, for the defending champs, if you will.
Let's bring in our next guest. He is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and his name is Daryl Bricker, no stranger to the show. Daryl, how are you? Great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. Let's begin with the poll results that were released at the start of the election campaign, which showed the Trudeau Liberals with a somewhat comfortable five-point lead entering the big dance. Yeah, they started off pretty well, but the um, the interesting thing was that those numbers were almost identical to what they had in a poll that we did about a month prior to that. So even though they had really, you know, cascaded the country with all sorts of uh, announcements and all sorts of money, on the day of the election, they really hadn't moved things very much. And, and if you take a look at how the first week has gone, uh, it hasn't gone very well for the government. So even though the opportunity is there, they seem to have stumbled a bit out of the uh, out of the starting blocks and are struggling at the moment. Which probably points to the uh, appetite to have an election at this point, right? Yeah. In fact, we found I think the number was 56 percent of Canadians said that they actually didn't want to have an election. So this has created a problem for the prime minister in that uh, um, uh, he's asked people to come out and have the you know an election that's going to be the most important since the end of the Second World War. And they're sitting back and saying, I don't know why we're having this at the moment, which uh, has you know raised questions on uh, on the day that the, uh, the prime minister kicked off the election. And it seemed to have been the filter through which everybody has looked at everything that's happened through the course of this week. The poll asked Canadians if they felt the country was going in the right direction. 48% of respondents agreed, 50% disagreed, 40% also said the Trudeau government has done a good job and deserves a re-election, 51% said they approved of the Liberals' overall performance, but 57% said it's time for another party to take over. That's a pretty interesting finding. Yeah, so what we're seeing is that uh, people look back at how the government has performed and the prime minister has performed through the pandemic, and uh, they're reasonably satisfied with uh, with, with what ha- what has happened. But when they're asked the question about where we're going to go for the future, so that's the question the prime minister presented as the reason for having this election. All of a sudden, things start to get a little bit uh, start to get a little bit dicey, and people start contemplating up you know, other possibilities going forward. And particularly given uh, the, the fact that they were, uh, they really don't want to have this election campaign, there's a, there's a certain amount of bounce back, I would say, on the government uh, that's been created by this. So, uh, yeah, uh, when they, we look at how the government has performed over the course of the pandemic, the numbers are pretty good. But when we throw up the question and say, well, uh, should we be considering other options and that kind of thing, all of a sudden uh, Canadians are having their eyes open. Respondents also overwhelmingly supportive of mandated COVID-19 vaccines and vaccine passports or certificates. We certainly saw that debate uh, pop up uh, a few times this week. Um, Liberals, NDP, certainly in that uh, category. The the Tories, not so much. Uh, May this factor on voting day? Well, you're going to see that the Liberals are going to push this uh, uh, as we go through the election campaign, as they have since the day of the announcement, to try and make it a bit of a wedge issue for the Conservatives so they can kind of point out to Canadians that this is the kind of government you're going to get, somebody who doesn't uh, uh, who doesn't uh, understand that vaccines are uh, important enough. And in fact, even Conservative Party supporters, strong majorities of Conservative people who say they're going to vote Conservative today, think that vaccines should be mandatory for a number of categories of uh, of, uh, of professions and uh, and uh, categories of people. So, the, you know, you said the, the debate on, on vaccines. Well, there actually isn't much of a debate on vaccines because people are pretty well decided on that question. 
Daryl Bricker is our guest to open up hour number two of the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy. Daryl is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and a recent poll that they have conducted exclusively for Global News also found that the Liberals are the party with the best plan for Canada post-COVID. 32% say the Liberals have the best plan, 18% for the Conservatives, 12% for the NDP. That's quite a big gap. Yeah, and that, but those numbers are from uh, at the time of the the election call. So the okay. the Conservatives hadn't dropped their platform, the NDP hadn't dropped their platform at that point. So the only plan that Canadians had any sense of, uh, and the plan that they were thinking about, was probably the things that the, the Prime Minister was talking about in the budget, and was presented in a budget. They were there. Were, that was the only thing that was on the table as far as they were concerned. Uh, it'll be interesting in our next polling, which is in field right now, and we should have results early next week for for global again, uh, whether Canadians feel the same on that question now. Yeah, as long as they like the cover of the uh, PC plan and the Mike Holmes-like stance that leader Arno Tool had, that might uh, make some waves. Well, welcome to the gun show. <laughs> exactly. Among the top election issues, according to the poll, and no surprise, healthcare is number one, followed closely by COVID-19 pandemic. Was there anything that surprised you on the list other than those two? Uh, one of the one uh, that's it's, it's, uh, was at the top issue the last time around was climate change, which is still in the top five, but certainly not on the same level as people's concern about the pandemic, health court care, or even the economy at the moment. Uh, but uh, what's really interesting in terms of the of uh, top issues is for people. We also asked people who said, you know, this was a top issue for them, which party they thought would do the best job of delivering on it. So on COVID-19, as uh, I said before, there's a real belief that this government has a good approach to managing COVID-19. So uh, they topped that by a considerable amount. Uh, but when you get to the economic issues, so first of all, management of the overall economy, the conservatives outpoint the liberals by about eight or nine points on that. And for the people who are most concerned about the economy, they prefer the Conservatives. For people who are most concerned about affordability, which is actually the number two issue, so the cost of living, the NDP actually is better than the uh, the, the Conservatives, or, or better than either the Liberals or the Conservatives on that by a couple of points. So there's a diversity of opinions when it comes to the most important issues as to which party would be the best able to, uh, to manage that issue if they were elected. Really interesting findings in terms of uh, who respondents uh, thought would make the best Prime Minister. Tell us about that. Yeah, Justin Trudeau by far. Uh, but when we get into the question of uh, all the characteristics, the various attributes that relate to, uh, you know, the, the character of uh, Justin Trudeau versus Aaron O'Toole versus Jagmeet Singh uh, and uh, what people think of him, you get a much fuller picture of what people are thinking. And the interesting thing on the prime minister is while they uh, do uh, have respect for things like, for example, how he performs on the international stage, uh, whether or not he's able to manage during tough uh, economic times, He's also seen by far as the politician who's most likely to say what he doesn't believe during the course of the election campaign. He's not seen as especially sincere. So uh, the uh, uh, on performance, reasonably good for the prime minister, but on everything that relates to character and personality, uh, not performing particularly well. So it's interesting how Canadians have evolved their opinions over the space of the last six years about Justin Trudeau. Yeah, 39% of Canadians, uh, according to this poll, say that Trudeau should get a third term, but 44% feel that he would say anything to get elected. And, and wouldn't that be the case for them all, really? <laughs> well, except there's one that people s seem to believe is most likely to do that. Right. And 40% said that they don't believe any of them would keep their election promises. And that is an extremely high number, or is it? 
Uh, it's fairly typical of what we see, but uh, on the uh, on all of those questions, the, the on many of them that we asked, the uh, uh, the the preferred leader was none of these people was the answer wow. to the answer to the question. So yeah, I wouldn't say that there's anybody standing out right now, at least at the time that we did the poll, as being the leader that Canadians have uh, have have gotten behind and believe uh, should be leading the country uh, through the uh, the end of the pandemic and the recovery. Yeah, last I checked, none of the above wasn't an option on the ballot, and it, maybe uh, maybe it'll be this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that is a bit of a problem because people aren't particularly inspired by either this this election campaign or the choices they're being asked to make. So the potential for this to be a relatively low turnout election, similar to what we saw, for example, in Nova Scotia, uh, is very real. And that's when uh, you know that the, the various demographic groups voting for each party become particularly important. And, and traditionally what we've seen is the Conservatives have a better turnout because they do better among baby boomers uh, who are the people who are most likely to show up and vote. This time around, however, what we're seeing is that the Liberals and Conservatives are basically tied among baby boomers. Conservatives doing better among male baby boomers, uh, Liberals doing better among female baby boomers. Hmm. And what about the young crowd, those millennials and, and even younger? They tend to they tend to uh, opt for the progressive parties, so for the Liberals, the NDP, and for the Green Party. But they're also the people who are least likely to show up if they don't believe that there's anything particularly at stake in the election. And in this case, uh, the, the 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 view of most of the people voting in this campaign is that the Liberals are going to win again. So there's not a, a sense that uh, there's anything particularly at stake. And then uh, if uh, you're going to uh, be asked to go out to a polling booth. There's some people who are put off by the risks associated with that. And then there's the barrier to get over to get a mail-in ballot that makes it even a little bit harder for some of these groups that are less attached to the political system to vote. So our expectation is you're going to probably see pretty low turnout in this election campaign unless something turns around. And that kind of situation probably turns into a very interesting showdown between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Yeah, I agree. I think this is going to be the lowest turnout we've seen in a long, long time. And, and obviously the pandemic is a big part of that. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says if his party is elected to power next month, it's going to provide subsidies of up to 50% to businesses that hire back workers lost during the pandemic. He told reporters in Winnipeg yesterday that the Tories are going to encourage employers to hire people who are desperate for work. Canada's Conservatives will stand with those who suffered during the downturn and help them get back into the workforce. Our plan does that by encouraging employers to hire those who need a job the most. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business launching an initiative to give business owners a chance to tell Canada's political parties what measures they want to see in their platforms. I guess the question is, will those with an eye on Parliament Hill actually listen? Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and he joins us now. Dan, how are you? Good afternoon. How confident are you that the main party leaders are focused on helping Canadian businesses, including thousands of small businesses in this country that have been crushed by COVID? You know, going into the election, uh, business owners were understandably worried that political leaders were moving away from any kind of COVID supports, uh, kind of moving on, really. The, the federal government had begun to phase out the rent subsidy, phase out the wage subsidy, even as we move into a fourth wave and provinces start to, uh, to to look and question new restrictions for business owners. Ontario just this week decided to prolong capacity restrictions for basically indefinitely. Uh, so small business owners were worried. But I, but I have to say, it's the first week of the campaign, and I have been encouraged 
that we've seen from both the Liberals and the Conservatives some decent suggestions that that really do uh, make out that they get that the pandemic's not over, the economic impacts are, are haven't been felt yet, and uh, and they've offered some fresh support. Uh, so 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 far, a little bit of good news. Has there been one thing that has really caught your ear to say, wow, okay, that'll make a huge difference? The, the two things, one from the Liberals and one from the Tories. The Conservatives have, uh, in their platform, put forward basically an expansion and, uh, and renewal of a Liberal plan, the, the, the Canada Emergency Business Account, the CBA loans, as they're called. The Liberals, in, while in government, put forward $60,000 loans, made them available to small business owners, and up to 20000 of those loans were forgivable. It was a really good measure, very popular. 800,000 small business owners across Canada uh, did, did apply for these loans. Um, but the, the program was closed. Uh, the government shut her down, and that has been a real challenge. The Tories have promised to open that program back up, expand the loan, the maximum loan, from 60000 to two hundred. 200000 and allow up to 25% of that overall loan to be forgivable upon repayment of the balance. So that was a good plan of the Conservatives. The Liberals have said that they get that the phasing out of the wage and the rent subsidy for certain sectors of the economy is too soon. So they've promised to, to raise the maximum subsidy back up to 75% of wages, 75% of rent uh, for those in, in the tourism sector. So that was a narrow piece. Uh, but a good measure nonetheless from the Liberal Party. Our guest is Dan Kelly. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick Zamprin in for Roy today. Uh, There's a list of measures on the CFIB website that business owners basically want to see included in federal party platforms. Uh, Do you mind if we go through some of the hot items that your members want to see in action? For sure. You know, look, I mean, they, they definitely want to see a, an extension of pandemic support. We've talked about a couple of the measures in the platforms that do just that. Uh, one of the other big deals is, of course, a growing shortage of labor. Uh, that, As we reopen, many businesses are coming up short when they're trying to call their staff and, and bring them back to work. In part, that's because some workers are part-time workers are better off on the uh, CRB stream, the, the, the benefit designed for the unemployed, they're better off than when they worked on a very part-time basis. If you make, if you work 10 hours a week at 15, uh, at 15 bucks an hour, you make $150 a week, whereas on the CRB uh, provided by government, you actually make 300 a week, double your working wages. Uh, therefore, it's not too hard to imagine that some employees are hesitant to get off of that plan. Uh, so the shortage of labor is a big deal. Both parties do have promises. The Liberals have promised to extend their new hiring subsidy, the 50% hiring subsidy, up out until the end, uh, the end of March of uh, of 2022. The Conservatives proposed uh, a new approach, uh, as you played the clip from Aaron O'Toole. That plan would be over the next six months, and that plan would provide a 25 to 50% subsidy to businesses. Both of those proposals have pros and cons, uh, so di- different businesses would be better off under the Conservative plan, and some other businesses would be better off under the Liberal plan. As we know, there's two certainties in life, death and taxes, and the overall tax burden is also high on the list. Um, there's a lot of tax being paid by small business owners. Yeah, no, it, 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 the, one, of, one of the big criticisms that we've had of the government over the last little bit is that they haven't stopped some of the tax increases that are going into place, that went into place in the last number of months during covid 
and some of the tax increases that are scheduled to go into effect uh, in the months ahead. Uh, a big part of this, of course, is the carbon tax. The carbon tax is, is, is expected to, it has been escalating during the COVID period and is expected to escalate even further over the years ahead. Small businesses pay a huge chunk of that carbon tax. The rebate schemes really don't deliver for them. So that's one piece of it. CPP premiums are going up each year for the next, uh, I think there's five more years of rising CPP premiums. That's really poorly timed for business owners right now. And then, of course, liquor taxes are escalating every year. So we're asking governments, all parties, uh, to put the brakes on tax hikes. We can debate the merits of whether the carbon tax, CPP, liquor taxes need to go up. But for goodness sakes, maybe put the brakes on it at least until we're out of the uh, the terrible pandemic and the economic calamity that has really hurt small business owners so very deeply over the last little while. I'll, I'll add that right now, if you can believe it, only 35% of small businesses across Canada are at normal levels of revenues. Uh, therefore, these kinds of taxes are just really debilitating to them. I would suggest that following closely to death and taxes would be insurance. And uh, the CFIB is, is calling for a plan to ensure that uh, any future changes to employment insurance are made with, you know, keeping in mind that small businesses are impacted by this as well. Yeah, it's a it's a big worry. Uh, we talked a, a second ago about the CRB stream of, of EI. That's costing billions of dollars. Right now, that's paid by general revenues. But the expansion of benefits and the reduction of hours necessary to get EI benefits in Canada, if that if those policies and including things like paid sick time, if those things are made permanent as post-pandemic uh, priorities, spending priorities through the EI system, we can expect EI rates, which are a payroll tax, to go up. Now, remember, every Canadian on their paycheck pays both Canada pension plan premiums and employment insurance premiums. On EI, the employee pays 40% of the cost, but the employer has to pay 60% of the cost of EI, and that's why small businesses want to keep their eye on any policies that are going to make that go up. We're chatting with Dan Kelly. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. A couple more minutes with him here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy today. Um, CFIB also calling for uh, the government or whoever wins the election to control government spending and, you know, set out a time frame to have the budget balanced. Yeah, this is a tricky one. Look, I, I don't want to... Uh, <laughs> we have been understanding that go- that governments are running giant deficits right now, in part because the government has necessarily had to step in and shore up parts of the economy through subsidies to businesses, subsidies to the unemployed, and, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, so we get that there needs to be deficit financing in calamitous times like this. What we have been more critical, though, is the ramp-up of spending in all sorts of government departments over the last number of years, and we really need governments to hunker down uh, get us through the pandemic and then watch every nickel that government spends. Give us, we're not expecting the deficit to be retired in a couple of years, but for goodness sakes, give us a time frame, uh, perhaps over the next decade or so, where, where we could start to move Canada's uh, budget balance uh, back into a, uh, into a net neutral position. That's, that's what Canadian small business owners are concerned about because we know that today's deficits are tomorrow's taxes. Uh, and uh, my 12-year-old son and, and kids across the country are going to be paying for these uh, on top of the business owners that uh, that are going to struggle with the weight of the tax burden that we have yet to feel. Dan, is the CFIB officially supporting any one party? Uh, are you allowed to? 
No, no, we're a strictly nonpartisan organization. Whether we're allowed to, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but but in our we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year as an organization. Uh, and uh, while we certainly will provide uh, details of the platforms to all of our members, we let them make the decision as to which party they wish to support. Uh, we have to work with whomever's in power and all opposition party parties. So we never speak out on on which party business owners should support. We do, though, criticize all bad ideas, and we will compliment all good ideas, regardless of the political party that makes them. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 